Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, our four-part series on the films of Christopher Nolan continues with a discussion of two smaller movies he made right around the time he was becoming a Hollywood hitmaker. One of them, Insomnia, is a detective thriller starring Al Pacino. The other is The Prestige, which pits Christian Bale against Hugh Jackman in a drama of dueling magicians. Welcome to Film Club. Okay, Katie, so last week on the show, we talked about the Dark Knight trilogy. This is uh, Christopher yep. Nolan's only franchise, uh, and, and also mm-hmm. the films that kind of ushered him into the filmmaker he is today, this uh, a sort of a big-budget hitmaker. Yeah, I definitely, I think those were the films that made him, uh, I, you could even say a household name as far as directors go. I think so, yeah. Um, so this week we're, we're going to be kind of uh, in honor of the chronological games that, that Nolan maybe plays in his own work. <laughs> uh, we're going to be looking both uh, before the Batman films and slightly after in the sense that we are looking at two movies he made on either sides of Batman Begins, the, the first of his Dark Knight mm-hmm. films. They are in some respects similar. Uh, they're both sort of smaller thrillers. Smaller, smaller being a relative distinction, of course. I mean, both of them have movie stars in them. But right. smaller in, in the uh, in the scope of Nolan's career, which obviously has gotten enormous in the years since. Um, so the, right, yeah. Uh, so they're both smaller films, um, and they do have some similarities, uh, including, uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, the ever-present dead uh, w- <laughs> wife or girlfriend. There's, hey, the prestige, uh, you get two dead wives to the price of one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I um, like the movie. I, I, I know this is a thing I goof on a lot, but it is, I mean, it's just kind it of It comes amusing. up constantly in his work, you know? Yeah, um, totally. It, but the, they're both similar also in the sense that both of them are based on someone else's story. Um, mm-hmm. But in another respect, I think that these kind of also represent two different, uh, two kind of extremes in Nolan's career in terms of authorship. Okay. Um, because Insomnia, in a lot of respects, I think is the the least distinctly Christopher Nolan film, probably of all the Christopher Nolan films. Yeah, I agree with that. There's not a whole lot stylistically that stands out to make it a you know capital C, capital N Christopher Nolan production. Which, I mean, I think also has to do with the fact that it's the only one of his films that he does not have a writing credit on. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, he did not write the screenplay for, for Insomnia at all. It's, it's So it's the closest he's come to doing something that you could call work for hire. Mm-hmm. Wh- whereas The Prestige, I think, uh, even though it's based on somebody else's novel, The Prestige very much strikes me as kind of... Um, as kind of, in some respects, like an ultimate Christopher Nolan text mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In, in the degree to which it is uh, pulling in a lot of themes that he's interested in and reflecting on a lot of the ideas that he's been exploring through his work. And in some respects, that one, which was made after Batman Begins, feels like a passion project that the Batman films paid for in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah, yeah. And when you, I mean, you mentioned these as smaller Christopher Nolan movies. Uh, in Compared to how he is now, it's just like they probably weren't the most hyped film of the week of their release. <laughs> you know, it's right. that kind of relative term. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I mean, it, you know, I mean, now his, his movies routinely, uh, I mean, uh, one would be considered a disappointment if it made only 100 million. Whereas, yeah, only, right? <laughs> exactly. Whereas these are films that um, that didn't do... 
Well, I mean, uh, I mean, the Prestige cost forty million dollars and made mm-hmm. around a hundred itself. Actually, it mm-hmm. actually was quite the success. The, the success, but it is in in the grand scheme of Nolan's career, it looks like a much more intimate piece of work in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, just the the scope of the story and even you know the fact that it takes place like all of there's no real dream worlds involved so compared to the later work or like you know deep space and the the sweep isn't quite there in exactly. the prestige yeah even though it is a quite complicated story of a very complicated one um mm-hmm. I think we should start with Insomnia. Let's talk about Insomnia yeah. first. Um, Get it out I, of the way, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually quite like this film in, okay. in some ways. I do think it's it's one of his, again, I do think it's it's the closest he's come to doing something work for hire. I mean, at that point, he had only made following in Memento. He was kind of uh, in a position where uh, he could he could attach himself to, to a Hollywood production. This is sort mm-hmm. of his entry into Hollywood movie making in a way. Yeah, I believe it was Steven Soderbergh, who's one of the executive producers on Insomnia, was the one who uh, you know brought him in to direct the project. He like got him a phone call, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, actually, but, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. I went to a um, a couple years ago I, when I was seeing uh, High Flying Bird at Slam Dance, um, which is the smaller film festival where Following actually premiered, um, and uh, where. Uh, where Soderbergh was introducing, uh, he was introducing High Flying Bird. He he did this talk before the film, and he was talking a little bit about his relationship to Christopher Nolan and how, mm-hmm. um, and how basically he, uh, how 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 basically his role in getting Insomnia made was basically just helping. Like sometimes, at, as a powerful executive producer, really, it's just a matter of getting somebody a meeting. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um... The equivalent of yeah, sure, I'll introduce you over email, like one of those. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, it is the only film that he does not have a screenwriting credit on, and um, but and yet watching rewatching it for the first time since really since it came out in theaters, I remember seeing it in theaters afterwards. I was already a I was already a huge Memento fan at that point, so I was really mm. excited to see what he did next. Um, there actually is like a ton of thematic overlap in Insomnia with with uh, with his earlier work, and I think with the films he would make afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's another one of his films like Memento that's about someone who thinks he's the hero but might not really be one. You know, mm-hmm. it's about how we can't really grasp our own motives, and, and it is kind of a battle of wills between the forces of. Of, of if not good and evil law and lawlessness. I mean, um, just like the Joker, the bad guy in this film is determined to make uh, the hero uh, think of think of him as an, an equal and as somebody who's just like him, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it's more like that. They're just two uh, immovable forces, you know, crashing against each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the film is set in Alaska. It's set in a town called Nightmute, a real town. Great name for a town, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> an appropriate one, too, because uh, because this is in the sort of far reaches of, of Alaska. It's a place where uh, the sun doesn't set um, through through uh, much of the year. I mean, through the other half, it uh, the sun is only down. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the, I think believe the film itself was filmed in British Columbia or something. Um, which it, yeah, which makes, yeah, yeah. It, it like makes a ton of sense because there's, um, I feel like there's a there's a real X Files vibe to some of the <laughs> to some of the backdrops in this film. You know, I can definitely see them going to like a logging town, like the one that they go to in this. You know, yeah. It also lends it um, a little bit of a 
well, I mean, it's more majestic than Twin Peaks, but there's like a lot of, there's some superficial resemblances of elements of the plot to Twin Peaks. And then it's also set in the, in the Northwest, so. Totally. Well, I mean, so there's a, um, there, a teenage girl has been murdered basically in this small Alaskan town and two police officers from Los Angeles, uh, played by Al Pacino and Martin Donovan, uh, have been flown in to help with the investigation. They're, in, they're sort of in over their heads in, in this town. They don't get a lot of murders. Uh, so the two of them come in and they're kind of dealing with... Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, there is a big internal affairs investigation happening. So the two of them are very concerned that sort of um, past instances where they may have bent the law are going to be unveiled. And uh, early in the film, we learn that Martin Donovan's character is intending on making a deal with IA um, to sort of save his own skin. So... Um, yeah, uh, so they're investigating this murder, and something happens early in the film. I guess we should we should give the customary spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about some of the details of these films. Yeah. Uh, there's no way to do it. So if you haven't seen Insomnia, um, which, by the way, is based on a Norwegian film from a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if you haven't seen either of those films, then uh, you're going to get some spoilers here. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so earlier into the film, uh, early into the film, Al Pacino's character, uh, they're pursuing the suspect through the fog. And Al Pacino's character fires his gun, and he ends up uh, killing his partner, uh, the character played by Martin Donovan. And mm -hmm. one of the questions uh, in in the film is, uh, was it truly an accident, or on some unconscious level, did he intentionally shoot his partner? Um, yeah, and even even the, the the circumstances that lead to them kind of being lost in the fog, it's like they're like planting uh evidence and hopes that the killer will come and try to find it and the whole thing is very shaky to begin with even before this very um uh dubious uh, you know what seems like a dubious accident happens totally and we actually just i mean we were, when we were talking about the batman films last week we were talking about how the movies kind of end up coming down on the sides of the ends justify the means a little bit yep. um mm -hmm. this is a film that makes that the one of the primary questions that it's asking. I mean, because the, the police officers in this film occasionally do things that are not on the level, and the movie really does seem to be asking occasionally, is it okay for them to do that in order to catch truly dangerous people? I mean, it's, it's right there in this I, film, you know? Yeah, I think this film comes more down on the side of it not being worth it yeah. than the Dark Knight films. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, because it, it, it clearly is this, it's this corrosive force you know, right. exactly. in, in their yes. lives and in the investigations. It undermines um, everything. Yep, you know? totally. So I have seen the Norwegian film that it's based on. Uh, to my memory, that is a slightly harsher and, and even more morally ambiguous movie. Um, mm -hmm. So there's sort of a moment that really points out how this has been slightly Hollywoodized in some respects. Um, there is a scene where, uh, in the original, where he goes into this alley and he needs to, like, plant a bullet basically in the body and he goes in this alley and he finds a stray dog and he kills the dog he shoots the dog and and uses Jesus. the bullet yeah well so in, in but in Nolan's version the dog is already dead he just yes, finds exactly. a dead dog conveniently laying in an alley and then he can just shoot the corpse and that is to me that is like one of those moments that really uh, demonstrates that uh, this thing does not necessarily quite have the nerve of its predecessor of the film it's based mm -hmm. on you know mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot more willing to paint the Pacino character as a uh, a pretty morally dubious guy you know mm -hmm. and in this I mean you know he's he's a complicated character in Nolan's film I just don't think he's quite as um, the movie is a little bit more gun shy 
no pun intended, in um, <laughs> in, in in really delving into how much of uh, of how, how much of a bastard copy can be, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think that's just uh, you know something that you would find in, like you said, the Hollywoodization of the material, because Nor- Norwegian thrillers and Scandinavian thrillers in general are known for being very, very dark yes. and very, um, uh, you know, they they really like to play in. M- dark moral conundrums and cruelty and things like that and for example um like there was the movie uh cold pursuit which was the liam neeson remake Mm -hmm. of a norwegian uh film with a similar premise with stellan skarsgård and that film too they kind of they, they took a slightly lighter tone with it yeah totally yeah um so uh what do you think of pacino in the film pacino's good in the film um, no. He is he his performance reminded me of a slightly toned down version of his performance in Heat at times because in yeah. Heat he goes like wild and in this one he he's it, well the character is very tired so I suppose that accounts for it being turned down a little bit but um, that was yeah. the movie I thought of the most watching his performance yeah I mean again we talked when we were talking about the Batman films we talked about Heat being an influence on, mm-hmm. on those as well and I think that he's doing something Pacino is doing something similar in this that he's that he does in Heat, which is that there are moments when he's sort of flying off the, you know, the, the she's got a great ass, Pacino, you know? <laughs> and Classic. you got your head all the way all up All the it. way up it! <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of that here, too. But as in Heat, I think that uh, the movie distinguishes the idea that, um, that Pacino, when he is going over the top, he's doing mm-hmm. it as a part of a performance of being a cop. Because... Um, as in Heat, there are a lot of scenes in Insomnia where he is actually re- kind of subtle, I think, and kind of downplaying, um, kind of downplaying his emotions some. So yeah, the title Insomnia is you know a reference to the fact that his character can't sleep, and like I mentioned, I think part of the subduedness is the fact that as the film goes on, he gets more and more red-eyed and bags under his eyes and haggard, and to the point where he's practically hallucinating because he's just so tired. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty, it's a really strong sleepless performance in, in mm-hmm. that respect. I think one mm-hmm. of the best things this movie has going for it is that it does it does do a pretty good job of capturing that between wake and sleep feeling when you have not slept for a really long time mm-hmm. and the sun is just burning into your brain, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the detail there that really struck me was um, like he'll do these uh, jump cuts where it'll be like 11 p.m., 4 a.m., 7 a.m. and that was like, yeah, that's... <laughs> Been there, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just think, um, I, I do think this is one of his better latter-day performances. I mean, Pacino mm-hmm. has become, in recent years, has sort of taken, taken a lot of uh, taking a lot of heat for um, for being a, it's sort of an incorrigible overactor, you know? Mm-hmm. That the later period Pacino is always bellowing. I, I think he puts that to great use in The Irishman, for example. I, I love mm-hmm. his performance in that. Um, but in this, I think he's a lot, a lot of it, he's a lot more controlled. Uh, there's this great early scene where he goes to talk to the victim's boyfriend in high school. He sort of pulls him aside, and the boyfriend is trying to... Um, to sort of put up this this front of indifference and cool and 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 toughness, and he just basically says that may work to people in your town, but it's not going to work on me. I'm the cop from Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. um, he plays it quiet in a lot of respects. He plays it con- really controlled. So when the moments when he does fly off the handle in this, they're all in scenes where he is deliberately trying to intimidate or play the part of somebody who is really mad. You know. 
Mm-hmm. Another spoiler here for folks who haven't seen the film, but um, you've been warned. Uh, the mm-hmm. villain in the film is played by Robin Williams. Yes, and um, we were discussing before we started recording that this was in 2002, and 2002 was kind of the height of Robin Williams' reinvention as a a, a villain actor, you know, a sinister guy, like One Hour Photo, which is a film that I remember seeing when it came out and never forgot, also came out in 02, and then you mentioned Death, for, Death to Smoochie also came out in 02. Yeah, it was like Williams like took a year where he was like, I'm going to make only dark projects where I play deranged <laughs> characters, you know. Um, so I do think this is the best of those performances from that year. Um, I th- so R- Williams doesn't show up. We, we hear him on the phone a couple times, but he doesn't really show up until about halfway through the, through the film. And I do, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, I, by the time, I mean, he's on the poster. This is one of those things where I really wish the movie could, in some respects, preserve that surprise. Yeah. Um, because it would be great to just suddenly see Williams, you know. Uh, in this role Um, and he is you know even though he's playing obviously he's playing a murderer in this movie he is he is even more subdued than Pacino in some ways this yeah. is like the, the kind of the least animated I think I've ever really seen Robin Williams honestly yeah 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 uh, uh, he just he plays him as such this pathetic rationalizing character somebody who has decided that he's He's this small town writer, and he uh, he has intellectualized what he's done in this case, and and found a way to sort of compartmentalize it as it wasn't murder, it was an accident, just like what you did. And um, I think that that Williams Williams and Pacino play off each other pretty beautifully. I think. And and Williams plays a pretty effective creep. Uh, I mentioned there yeah. being some you know su- superficial similarities to Twin Peaks, uh, as in Twin Peaks, the the girl who is murdered turns out to have sort of this secret you know, double life, and it turns out to be an inappropriate relationship with this grown man, you know, this novelist Mm -hmm. played by Robin Williams. And um, the thing, uh, you mentioned him rationalizing uh, I what I thought was interesting about that character is that he had placed himself. He kind of considered himself uh, above the morality of the people around him. That he mm-hmm. thought, and like, and so maybe he kind of welcomes Pacino coming to town because he's like, oh, finally, yes, someone who is on my level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do think there's the. I mean, again, I'll I'll say this again. I think there's a little bit of the blueprint of what Nolan would do with the kind of Joker Batman dichotomy late, like yeah, two, film, two films. Oh, later, that's three so films interesting. Later. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Because there, he's like, you and I are exactly alike. We, you know, we didn't mean to do this, but we can understand what needs to be done now. You know, um, and, and I'm going to drag you down with me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I do think I still think it is the closest he's come to making something that's work for hire, in, in part sure. because he's not, he, he, mostly because he did not he did not write this in any respect. Um, and uh, but you know there are still there's still plenty of Nolan touches in it. Um, those exactly. little those little subliminal blips of memory and mm-hmm. uh, that's that's a very that's a that's like a that's like straight out of Memento, honestly, mm-hmm. um, where he'll give us little glimpses of the crime and little glimpses of the character of the characters remembering things like when when Pacino is haunted by the memories of, uh, of killing his partner. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of the, the disorientation he favored early in his career for action scenes. Um, I, there's like a there's like a scene where he's chasing Williams across these these logs that are in the water, and it is it is basically staged for maximum disorientation rather than clarity. Um, and I have to say, I'm sort of glad that Nolan got over that particular 
state in his <laughs> career, you know? <laughs> yeah, and um, and yeah, well, it is interesting, though. You know, we're saying it's a work-for-hire project. He didn't write it and everything. But a lot of it does dovetail really nicely with his style because, uh, you know, the insomnia theme, like we mentioned, Pacino's character gets into this kind of fugue state. And, mm-hmm. you know, Nolan's cut-ins work in really well in that context, I think. Totally. You know? And, I mean, one of the ways he descri- – in Memento, one of the ways that Leonard describes his conditions is he says it's like constantly waking, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to see him in his very next film deal with a character who is in a state of – of uh he's always awake uh so uh sort of him getting into him him, him using the, those those devices those editing devices especially to to uh reflect the psychology of these characters um i, I think it works fairly well in, in yeah definitely well. in the editing is what i thought was you know perhaps the most nolan-esque touch in this film yep um okay so let's move on to the prestige a very uh, Nolan-esque movie. I mean, I do think maybe in some respects the ultimate Nolan movie. Um, oh, the quintessential one? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. I have a different opinion on this. We'll get into it in the next episode. Oh, okay. Well, great. Um, but So he made The Prestige. He, he had intended to make it before he did Batman Begins, but he had to sort of get into the production of that film. Um, and so he ended up making it between Batman Begins and... Uh, and the Dark Knight, and so it, it's this kind of uh, it's this kind of intrusion of auteurism in between his two big franchise movies, or, or, or two of them anyway. Um, and uh, it's based on a novel by Christopher Priest that's uh, uh, pist- uh, pistolary, so it's mainly told through letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have not read the novel. I'm told that it it deviates rather dramatically during later sections of the story. Um, but, uh, it's a great, it's a great setting, a great, uh, milieu, one would say. I mean, the, yeah, yeah. I, this time in history was a really interesting, it was a really interesting period in history. Pretty fun. Like there were a lot of, um, you know, the, the rivalry between Edison and Tesla is one of the background themes in this film. And that is in itself a very, uh, fascinating and dramatic story about, you know, <laughs> yeah. ri- uh, perhaps you could say rival geniuses trying to destroy each other. Yep. And uh, by the way, side note: as of this this week, uh, you can rent. Uh, there's a new there's a new film about Tesla that's out with Ethan Hawke in the role. Um, so that I would love make, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> that would make an interesting, possibly an interesting counterpiece to or a counterpoint to the Prestige, um, mm-hmm. considering how much Tesla ends up the role he ends up playing in the film. But uh, yeah, so the film is set in the 19th century uh, in London, and we're we're basically following two characters. Uh, Hugh Jackman as Robert Angier and Christian Bale as Alfred Borden and they are sort of dueling magicians um, the film like a lot of uh, like a lot of Nolan's work does not unfold chronologically um, it's actually yeah. one of his more complicated uh, plots in terms of following the various paths of its uh, of its chronology um, yeah I was gonna say I had seen this movie before and watching it again I I do think that you know first time watching you you may have to kind of rewind certain parts because it does get quite convoluted because there's no, you know it, not there's not just the achronological thing there's also you know lots of doubles and double crosses and secrets and you know it, it gets very convoluted is the wrong word but it gets very complicated <laughs> yeah yeah it's i mean it's a, it, among his twistiest i would say mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Of, of his films and um 
you mentioned doubles. There, there, there are lots of doubles in this film. It's one of the the many themes. I actually think The Prestige is one of his richest films in terms of uh, just layers of ideas and themes and and narrative layers. I mean, the film, yeah. uh, the film literally is, has characters reading each other's diaries, and uh, so we get unreliable narration within unreliable narration, um, <laughs> which is kind of remarkable. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's impossible to follow. I actually think it's Nolan at this point in his career had become, I think, really good at these these kind of um, these these once one could say architecturally complicated plots. Yeah, um, yeah. it's and, definitely one of his signatures. Uh, so early in the film, uh, the, the two of them are, are again are, are working as uh, they're working as proteges to a magician, and mm-hmm. uh, Jackman's character is uh, is married to uh, one of the stagehands to to the magician's assistant, uh, played by Piper Perabu, and. Um, Bale's character ends up tying a knot that she can't get out of during one of one of the illusions during the um, the escape from a water tank illusion, the very mm-hmm. very dangerous illusion, and uh, she ends up dying. And the question becomes, um, like, basically, Bale's character refuses to acknowledge on some level what kind of knot he tied because there's some argument about it. Um, and as an insomnia becomes, uh, it becomes one of the questions that looms over this thing. Was it, at, in insomnia, it's like did. Did Pacino's character on some level intentionally shoot and kill his partner? And in this, it's like, does he does he not remember the knot that he tied? Does he really not remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it becomes this this this. Uh, it's a breaking point between them, and the whole film is about them basically sniping back and forth at each other, trying to get ahead of each other professionally, trying trying to engineer revenge, and it becomes this portrait of uh, of obsession and, and vengeance as this downward, as this force that just pulls you down. Very yeah, deep. yeah, it definitely uh, kind of, it becomes this thing about which, which is where Jackman's character kind of thinks that Christian Bale's character says you owe me a life you know you ruined my life and now you owe me your life because Bale goes on to have you know in his personal life uh you know uh, he has a he also gets married uh to character played by Rebecca Hall and they have a happy marriage and a child and everything and then this and Jackman really resents that you know so it's not just a professional rivalry uh, exactly. Yep. Um, I think both of them are very good in the roles. Um, uh, Bale was obviously coming right off of um, of playing Bruce Wayne for for Nolan in the mm-hmm. previous film. Um, now and we've got Michael Caine yep. uh, telling telling wise stories is in this film as well. <laughs> <laughs> this one's about yeah, I mean, a drowning he's... man. He's basically <laughs> Alfred in this as well. You know? I mean, <laughs> he pretty you know. much is, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's not a radically different role. Basically playing Alfred uh, again in this. <laughs> I mean, he plays um he he plays sort of the uh he sort of plays both characters uh but particularly particularly the Jackman's characters inventor. He like helps him. Mm-hmm. He he sort of helps him realize these various illusions. Uh, the film is fascinating. I think even just on the level of like giving us a behind the scenes look at at stagecraft in terms of yeah. uh, how the magic business might have worked at that time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it opens with a voiceover from Michael Caine explaining, like, the three steps in a magic trick, which is a very interesting idea in itself. And I will say Michael Caine is uh, uni- uniquely suited <laughs> to an Alfred-type role, you know, in more recent yeah. years now that he's a little older. It's kind of, he's perfect for it, so why not, you know? <laughs> and he's got a great voice, too. I mean, if, mm-hmm. you can, if you can put that voice to good use, you know, uh, in voiceover, <laughs> definitely go 
go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, well, speaking of casting, you know, I think the casting in all the films that we've covered on this podcast has been very good. And uh, in this film, David Bowie plays Tesla with, uh, you know, some kind of um, cosmetic uh contact lenses in and having having david bowie as tesla was a, a brilliant <laughs> idea i think yeah he's very good in the part too i think mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a yeah, huge it's a part, small but part it's, but uh, yeah but he definitely uh you know like he's just a great choice for playing you know a, an eccentric genius that the world isn't ready for yeah, totally. You know, <laughs> life imitating art, maybe. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that a lot of this, I think that that Nolan sees in the the sort of lost art of magic. I think he sees, I think he sees a metaphor for storytelling. I think he sees a metaphor yeah. for for cinema. I mean, you could argue that, yes, the, exactly. that the film. Uh, you could look at the film, and I mean, due to the time period, you you could almost say that. Uh, that what I mean again we're traipsing into spoiler territories here but the prestige is much to the to my surprise when I first saw the film is actually a stealth science fiction movie um yes at, at some point along the way it's revealed that uh that in his in his pursuit for uh, the perfect trick he actually goes I mean he goes and sees Tesla and he comes up with a machine that actually is uh science fiction uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, now, do you consider superhero movies science fiction? Like, I, I, th- I think they're their own thing, honestly. Yeah, but I kind of do too. They are science fiction. I mean, think technically speaking, you know, usually anyway. Batman um, is specifically science fiction because you know he doesn't have superpowers; it's all gadget based. But you know, I was just like because a lot of you know Christopher Nolan's uh, more recent, you know, after this Inception, that's a science fiction movie, and so it's interesting mm-hmm. to see that thread, you know, moving from the noirs that he started with and slowly incorporating more of these science fiction elements. That's true, and that would become a major. Uh, kind of a like the, the major genre that he's working in from here. Although I guess that doesn't uh, it doesn't necessarily apply to Dunkirk, but um, sure, uh, yeah. But Dunkirk is more of an anomaly at this point. Yeah, because um, Tenet's a science fiction movie too. That is true. Um, to what extent we do not know yet because we have not seen it. <laughs> yep, <yet. laughs> yeah, man. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think the, the time period is important because I think that this mm-hmm. is partially, at least in, in, in at least metaphorically speaking, might be a story about the arrival of cinema and about the way mm. that uh, the science of making movies uh, effectively killed off some of uh, some of the old magic of the world, one might say. Yeah. And if you, if you wanted to extend that metaphor further, you could say that the film becomes, if you, if you want to look at the film, if you want to look at the prestige as a film about, um, about cinema in general, you could say that uh, it's, it's possible that Nolan is lamenting the way that technology has uh, killed some of the Killed some of the old tricks of cinema, even which uh, a, a mm-hmm. lot of the uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of magic stagecraft in early cinema as well, and a lot oh, of the absolutely. tricks, the yeah, tricks yeah, they yeah. would do, you know. Yeah, um, totally. So you could see this if you wanted to. You could see this as a film about CGI as this as this destructive force that was that shows audiences things they they could never see before the impossible, but ends up in the process uh, killing off a kind of old a kind of old wonder. You know? Sure, and you know, like Nolan, and he uses CGI. He's not opposed to it, oh, no. like wholly. But you know, you can you can use something and still sort of mourn the way it used to be. Yeah, for 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 sure. And and one might even say that it's possible that Nolan, looking at the changing, I'm probably reading too much into this to be honest, but I'm 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 gonna go with it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> like I think these movies are pretty well suited to deep 
readings. Yeah. Because uh, there is just so much going on. <laughs> and and given how, in some respects, how personal this one feels in, in the mm-hmm. context of his career and some of its preoccupations, I mean, Nolan himself was moving out of the realm of, one could say, more practical magic, the kind that he was performing with purely with storytelling and purely with uh, with editing and with mm. the basic the basic building blocks of cinema in his early career. He yeah. was then moving at this point in his career into films that are about... Uh, that do rely on special effects, that do rely more on technology. So, is the prestige a kind of a, a kind of last gasp of the kind of filmmaking that he made early in his career? Is it him? Is it him acknowledging that from here on out, I, I am going to be a slave to the technology as well in some respects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's you know putting putting uh, a, a period of his career and his life to bed, maybe a little bit. Yeah, in the same way mm. that that these characters have in, in some respects have to say goodbye to the old way of doing things because once once this this new technology exists i mean they're kind of people are going to be looking for for wonder in in science not necessarily in their in the magic that they Yeah, in magic in in the old ways. Yeah. That totally. that's a really interesting reading of the movie. I haven't thought of it that way, but it it does all line up. And also using this period of history, you know, this was peak to be flippant about it. This was peak like great white man of history <laughs> years. Yeah. This was yeah. the time when, you know, um capitalism and uh colonial colonialism and all of these forces of just white male uh, entitlement were at their peak. (laughs) Our proudest time. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, and so, so it's a good choice of a period too, because, you know, like we were talking about, there's the characters in the film as like, you know, these two, like we talked about with insomnia it's these two unstoppable forces crashing against each other and also like batman and the joker and and that's just uh there was a lot of that going on at that time in history yeah for sure there are a lot of sort of um industrial rivalries and whatnot egos and great minds and and ambitious people colliding essentially all, mm-hmm. all scrambling for a piece all scrambling to be first to, to the table one might say historically speaking mm-hmm. um, and I think he yeah I think he's very much interested in that particular period um, I also think that the, whole, the I mean the whole thing being about a magic trick and about the way that you can bamboozle audiences and the way that you can you can trick them in misdirection is it feels like a thesis statement for his body of work I mean Nolan yeah that's the reading that I got off the film that it's yeah it is sort of a tribute to cinema as a sleight of hand trick totally yep um but i don't think again and we've talked about this before on during this series and uh, i think one of the major knocks against nolan is that he makes these kind of complicated empty uh exercises in in style and and chronological gamemanship but this is i think among his most tragic films in some ways and um I, I don't I actually don't want to get too much into the details of where the plot goes. Um, just yeah, I, because this movie it has one of one of the best endings. I uh, I think uh, probably one of my top ten film endings of all time. Because the first time you see it, you're like, 
oh shit yeah yeah it's it's um it's a twist that actually enriches the film that came before mm-hmm. it and it, it, in a lot of thematic ways and uh in sort of uh, the twists that i love are the ones that sort of gust feeling backwards through the movie you've been watching and mm-hmm. uh the prestige i think is one of those films that benefits from knowing where it's going when you're watching it again a second time yeah, totally. And but I will say the first time it is like all you know, this is a film with a lot of trap doors. The mm-hmm. the trick that these two are trying to uh, outdo each other in involves falling under the stage in a trap door. And the movie does that to you at the very end. It drops the bottom out in the last few seconds of the film. Yep, <laughs> that it does. Yeah, you were, we were talking before we started. You were talking about how much you like the look of this movie too. Yeah, I love the look of this movie. I like what I really like what he did with the period. Um, just the there's a lot of really nice textures in it. A lot of uh, you know um, silk fabrics and elaborate costumes and smoky rooms and dusty warehouses. There's just a lot of um, yeah. You really it, it's very tactile this film, and I really mm-hmm. like that about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the the great the great period pieces are the ones that kind of make you feel that often make you feel as though you're being pulled back into another time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, what it really would actually occupying. be like, totally. Like, what it because you know, like being in a place is way beyond just uh, the look of it. But yeah, I agree with you that a really good period piece, you you kind of like you feel like oh, it would be hot in this room, or you know, oh clothes would be comfortable or uncomfortable in mm-hmm. that sort of tactile sensation. I think that really comes through in the prestige. I think it does. Yeah. And I think that um, honestly, the setting is just such a strong, it's such a strong, interesting place in history that I think that even if this thing was not, um, was not so terrifically plotted and constructed. And it, uh, I think that it would be fun just to spend time in this world. You know? Yeah, totally. Like I want to read, books about about this world yeah this is yeah. actually one of my favorite periods to read about uh history books i like reading about oh yeah the turn of the yeah late 19th early 20th century it's a very interesting time yeah so rewatching this really solidified how much i think this is one of his one of his best films um one of his great ones really and, and yeah. one of the ones where he's using where he's just using uh, the complications of his plot to to talk about so much, you know. I, this thing just is layers on top of layers in terms of what it's about. You talked about doubles. There's there's so many. Mm-hmm. There's so much mirroring in this film, you know. So much. Uh, Listen, there is no no prop, no setting. Everything he uses, he just there's symbolism all over this film, you know. Like every minute of it, really, you know. <laughs> every minute of it, you know. Every visual fits into the theme. He just directs the directs the hell out of it totally um and it it is it is one of the it is the rare sort of brain bender you know uh a a film that sort of gets your mind racing with with where it's going in any given moment that also i think really does have a a a real emotional kick to it i think when Mm -hmm. when the whole thing comes together and we realize what these characters have sacrificed yeah you know and it's not all self-sacrifice either. That's as right. much as I'll say. Exactly. Um, well, something that uh, we talked about last week, talking about the Dark Knight films, is him, you know, I feel I feel those films are successful in taking comic book material and making it serious. There are mm. some elements of this film that in the wrong hands, in less talented hands, you know, there's a lot of fake mustaches and wigs <laughs> and spying yeah. and stuff like that. Stuff that could come across as a bit, like, silly or, mm. you know, overdone. Here, he manages to make putting on a fake beard seem uh twisted which i 
Credit to you, Mr. Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it, it feels of a piece of what the movie is about, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, about deception, about theatricality, about um, about characters who are who are who are constantly misdirecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I agree with you about the emotional impact, too. I really feel like we're we've maybe said too much already about where this film goes, but yeah. like the emotional sort of uh complications of it are very twisted can i ask you this though um yeah you know it's impossible to for me i don't remember how i reacted to this particular element there is an element of uh disguise in this film and i don't remember it being obvious to me when i saw when i first saw the film obviously now knowing where the movie goes that particular aspect is impossible to miss I think you know uh-huh. what I'm talking about. But I think I, I know what you're talking about. And no, I did not notice it the first time, but I noticed it the second time. And I was like, oh, yeah. No, that completely went over my head the first time I saw the movie. Well, because, you know, there's this, uh, there's this, this, uh, the Kenneth Branagh remake of Sleuth, for example, mm-hmm. has a similar development where a character shows up in disguise, a character we've only met. This is, the movie is basically a two-hander. And the minute you see him, you know exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. And you start to think that this is an element that works, that generally works better on stage where the audience doesn't have a direct look, like a close-up of oh, a Oh, yeah, of sure, a sure, sure. The, they're, they're farther away, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we, we can buy into that illusion a little bit more. Or sure, we, yeah. We, we, can be, we can be more easily tricked. Art. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I wonder, because I don't think I predicted it when I watched the film the first time, and I wonder No, if, I didn't even notice it, honestly. <laughs> I think it's just that Nolan deliberately backgrounds that character through most mm-hmm. of the film so that we aren't looking, we're never really looking at him. You know, which which again is just another tie to what the movie is. I mean, in the very beginning of the film, he says, "Are you paying attention?" And he tells you what he's going to do in the film, which is he's like, "This is the this is what a magic trick is. It distracts you from the element you should be looking at." Mm-hmm. And and I think it, it worked on me. If I, if I mean, I, if I trust my memories on this, I did not see that coming. I would wonder, are there people out there who watched this film who were immediately like, "Spoiler alert, our lady like is that fucking Christian Bale?" Also, you know. <laughs> No, well, you know, if somebody did, then they're they're more perceptive than both of us because this time around I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my, oh. Well, it's just the that, way he positions is. him. Yeah, I mean, he like never. He's, he's a very never... shadowy character. He's hanging around in the background and stuff like that. And yet, that. at the same time, the movie is never giving you the impression that it's trying to hide it. Like you can, a lot of the time, I there's a there's a film this year, um, the Kevin Bacon film, you should have left. Um, mm-hmm. You can sort of tell that the movie is trying to hide, one might say, a similar secret um, in that film. And uh, it, you can tell because the, the form that the film is using in any in, in, in in given scene is drawing attention to what we're not seeing. You know? Right, right. Um, or like the um, that classic Twilight Zone episode, um, uh, The Eye of the Beholder, where the doctors are all filmed from behind so that we don't see their faces. I, I can't imagine watching that episode even when it first hit the when it first on TV, uh, and not knowing that we that there was going to be a surprise about what the character's face looked right. like. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that also Nolan is very interested in playing fair in the sense that he does not mm. want us to feel cheated later like oh well you never showed us us showed showed him to us how how would we ever know that that's who it was mm-hmm. but the fact that we we see him multiple times throughout the film we just never get a prolonged look at him uh, it feels like him like basically being like We're, I'm not going to cheat this you know <laughs> but yeah, in this yeah, case yeah. Nolan is never emphasizing 
that we should be looking at this character or we shouldn't be looking at him. He's just an element who's in the frame, and I think that's very smart filmmaking. Yeah, it's a, it's another sleight of hand trick. All right, that's all we've got for you this week. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, please rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Next week, we'll close out our series on the films of Christopher Nolan with a discussion of his three original IP blockbusters, Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. Thanks for listening. Bye.